welcome to the Farming on Purpose podcast. Today's challenges in agriculture are new, but the grit and determination required to be successful have been handed down for generations. On the Farming on Purpose podcast, we preserve the ag heritage and traditions we built our identity on while pursuing the American dream of multi-generation farms that innovate for the future. Listen along as we share stories of how farmers and ranchers are building legacies, both in their business and their character, for the sake of those they'll pass the reins to. I'm your host, Lexi Wright, and I'm excited to talk with you about the financial, generational, and production challenges facing producers in the ag industry today. This podcast is brought to you by Back Pocket Social Marketing. And yes, this is Lexi here. This podcast has been a real passion project for me. All the time that goes into interviewing guests, editing, and producing the show is sponsored by my freelance marketing agency. We specialize in website design, social media advertising, content creation and management, and email marketing. If you like to take a foundational approach to your marketing and figure out exactly what's working for you and what's not, and really focus on efficiency, then you would be a great candidate to work with us. You can reach out and talk with us more at Lexi at BackPocketSocial.com. We would love to help you solve your marketing challenges. Welcome back to the Farming on Purpose podcast. I'm so excited today because I get to talk to Linnea. Um, Linnea, I met online. I guess we've never actually met in person, um, but I feel like I know you because we see each other several times a week. Um, We both work um, with K-Rose Company and Caroline Rose and um, just doing different tasks with her is how we have formed a relationship. And I know that Linnea um, has done a study that I wanted to bring her on to talk about today. Linnea, do you want to introduce yourself, tell folks who you are, where you are, what you do, and how you got started or um, your background in agriculture. Yeah, so thank you very much for having me. Um, My name is Linnea Langish and I work at Oklahoma State University. So originally I'm a Wisconsin native. That's where I was born and raised. And um, I wanted to escape those cold, harsh winters. So um, after college, I Um, decided to go to grad school at Oklahoma State University, which is where I started conducting the research that I'm going to talk about today um, involving direct-to-consumer marketing in the beef industry. And um, ever since then, I've had the opportunity to stay and work with Oklahoma State, working on a bunch of different other research projects in terms of rural communities and agriculture and all that. So um, it's been a wild journey. I didn't actually grow up involved in agriculture at all. So I, on a whim, really changed my intended major this summer between my senior year of high school and my first year of college from music and journalism to animal science. And then I just dove straight in and I started working at the um, meat and muscle biology lab at UW-Madison. And I worked the harvest floor there. I processed, I helped with the store. So that's really kind of where I learned the ins and outs of what it takes to kind of create food, which is was absolutely mind blowing to me at the time because I had absolutely no basis for how my food was being produced, where it came from and all of that. 
And we also had a lot of customers in there um, that would come into the store and ask questions about how their food was being raised. And it was just really cool for me to be able to actually answer those questions for them and kind of connect the people who were coming into our store to the product that they were buying. So that's originally where I kind of got this passion for direct-to-consumer um, marketing. And that just kind of carried on as I moved into um, grad school. So I did animal science in undergrad and grad school. I went for agricultural communications and I am a product of COVID. So all of my graduate career, I had, you know, the best laid plans and then COVID happened. So I had to switch my research halfway through my master's program, but it really turned out to be a blessing because it led me straight down this path. And I had the opportunity to look at something so unique in that COVID created a whole mess of things for the beef industry. And so I really had the opportunity to look at some of the opportunities and advantages and disadvantages that producers were experiencing during COVID, the start of COVID, um, and how that translated to how they're promoting their products and how they are connecting and communicating with consumers through that whole process. Wow. I didn't know that you like went from zero to 60 in animal science, basically the summer after high school. What was it just a random interest or what prompted that? It was a random interest. So I was always kind of horse crazy, but could never afford horses. So I worked at a therapy riding center all throughout high school and absolutely loved it. And, um, I just happened to, <laughs> I don't know, I got a wild hair or something and yeah. decided to switch to animal science. And it really changed the conversation at our dinner table because, um, <laughs> my mom is originally from Chicago area and, um, my dad grew up on a cherry orchard in Michigan, but, uh, definitely didn't have any background whatsoever with, um, cattle and what goes on in uh, meat processing facilities. And I worked for um, a couple companies part-time in college um, as an artificial insemination technician as well. So uh, yeah, really gave my parents a wild ride during, <laughs> during college, but I just fell in love with it immediately. And I learned so much through all those different experiences that I got in undergrad with my animal science degree that coming from the background that I had with absolutely no background knowledge, I wanted to be able to communicate about what I learned in my undergrad better to kind of, you know, get the word out and everything, um, which is kind of what led me down the path of agricultural communications. And here we are. <laughs> well, it completely changed the course of your life too. I'm sure you probably would not have met your fiance had you not chosen that um, major either. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a blessing in disguise as well. Um, God always has a plan, I guess. But um, that's one of the things that brought us together every time he would come up and visit um, all of his friends in Stillwater. We would just be sitting in the back of a party or whatever, chit-chatting about cows and how his goats were doing and, and looking at the cattle markets and all of that. So, yeah, it, it definitely has all come full circle. <laughs> So cool. Well, I'm so glad that that's where you ended up because that's why I know you too. Um, 
Do you mind if I ask, what were you researching or what were your plans before COVID? Yeah. So originally my first year of grad school, I really wanted to do um, a survey going into different kinds of grocery stores like Whole Foods. We have Sprouts here in Oklahoma, like Walmart, you know, your tiny little butcher shops and grocery stores and do a survey about um, perceptions of like the part, the components of labeling on beef products to see if these buzzwords are translating into purchasing behaviors and really what part of what a beef product looks like. What is that by, what is that, um, what is translating into the purchasing behavior and what is getting people to actually buy these products? So that's originally what I was interested in, but then the world shut down and you can't go into any of those places and ask people to talk to you. So um, that kind of translated into these interviews with producers all across the state um, asking about how, you know, what their experiences had been um, throughout the start of COVID. I um, started this research. I collected data between November and December of 2020. So it was, you know, a few months after the whole world shut down and there's a lot of ripple effects going on at that time from um, throughout the supply chain and everything. So it ended up being kind of a good time to collect that data. And um, the virtual aspect of it also allowed me to get a lot broader reach I talked to producers all over the state and really got um, a lot of unique perspectives, which was good. Yeah. Well, your original research project would have been very interesting as well. Maybe, maybe down the road sometime. <laughs> yep. Someday. It's still, it's still on the list. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad though that you ended up researching what you did. Um, because it's so relevant for a lot of folks that listen to this podcast. And I think the fact that you came at it from both sides about the conversation and the open lines of communication between producer and consumer is really valuable because that makes it so applicable to both parties. So tell us a little bit about how you conducted the research, um, what that process was like, and then what you guys found or what was determined. Yeah. So, um, Starting out, I really wanted to focus on the producer perspective of things because when I started kind of seeing all these news articles during the height of COVID about um, direct-to-consumer marketing and everything, it's actually a post from the Oklahoma Cattlemen's Association that got me thinking. And then I started looking into all of the like scientific literature about it. And there's only studies from consumer perspectives, what consumers want, what consumers purchase. And again, kind of looking at that perception of, you know, different labeling, different marketing tactics and how consumers are perceiving this. There's nothing out there. There's not a whole lot out there in terms of what producers are doing and how producers view these connections with consumers and how producers are deciding how they want to market their products and whether they want to market their products. So one of the really interesting things that I found in my lit review is that um, compared to crop producers, livestock producers are kind of um, fair weather participants in the direct to consumer game um, in terms of 
they don't necessarily have the consistency. So um, a lot of that is due to inspection regulations. There's a lot of hoops for any kind of animal product to get from the farm into consumers' kitchens. And there's obviously so many reasons for that, but um, there are a lot more hurdles for these livestock producers. So when it comes to committing to direct to consumer marketing, a lot of it is kind of dependent on the economy, on the cattle markets. If producers can make good money just selling their cattle to the processor or at the sale barn, they're more apt to do that. But when things go south with the economy, like they did in COVID, then uh, producers are likely to fall back on direct-to-consumer marketing as a way to kind of recoup some of the dollars and cut out that middleman to make a larger profit margin for themselves in those economic, um, economically uncertain times. So there's a lot of jumping in and jumping out for livestock producers and beef producers included, uh, whereas crop producers seem to be more uh, steady in that. But all of that to say, I, I really was interested in kind of seeing what made these producers interested and willing to um, sell and really work on formulating these relationships with consumers. Because it's not just like a traditional store where you have people come and pick things off the shelves. Um, most direct-to-consumer operations are a lot more personalized than that. So the way that I kind of conducted this study is um, I got 16 interviews total from ranchers across the state of Oklahoma. And I kind of used that snowball me method. So, you know, a lot letting people kind of lead me towards the next um, interview victim. And um, I had a bunch of questions for them relating to their marketing tactics, um, how they were um, before COVID, how they were during COVID, if that has, if any of that changed because of COVID. Um, and I also had a lot of interview questions relating to their perceptions of their relationships with consumers, if COVID has changed that at all, if COVID has changed any kind of the, um, any kind of communication methods that they're using to connect with those consumers. And um, like I said, I conducted or um, got all of these interviews done between November and December of 2020. So there was a lot of instability in the supply chain. Um, like April, May of 2020 uh, is really when a lot of that hit. Um, in May of 2020, the constrained harvest, we saw the, the smallest part of that bottleneck hit. And the constrained harvest in May of 2020 was 41% lower for steers and heifers than it was in May of 2019, which is just crazy. <laughs> Absolutely bananas. Yeah. Um, that is a lot of, of beef that, number one, isn't getting distributed to retailers for consumers to buy. And number two, that is a lot of cattle that producers don't have anywhere to go with because there's no harvesting uh, facilities open. And I think that's one of the things that um, was kind of a discussion that was opened up through COVID is that we have all these large processing facilities that um, are 
just doing crazy amounts of beef. When one of those gets shut down, which we would never think would happen, but COVID happened and all all of a sudden they are shutting down. Then we have like 10% of the beef that we use in the, um, in the country, just gone, vanished, poof. And then you have empty shelves and it's just a snowball effect that nobody saw coming and nobody really ever discussed the possibility of it happening because it seemed so far-fetched, but it's not so far-fetched anymore. So um, all of that to say there just was a skyrocket in demand and interest from consumers who wouldn't usually be looking at buying that much beef in bulk necessarily or consumers that wouldn't think to necessarily search out the person who's producing the food that they're eating. Um, All of a sudden, they can't get it at Walmart. So if you want beef, if you want protein, you have to go straight to the source. So that's where a lot of this came from. And um, there is a lot of interesting findings. So my first research objective, looking at how producers kind of altered their um, marketing tactics and promotional practices during COVID. Obviously, a lot of that has to do with um, moving things online, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the first... um, one of the one of the big, big things that I found in my review of previous literature um, in 2015, when they did the big USDA study on local food marketing um, practices, six percent of direct to consumer sales um, that were agricultural products were conducted with online sales. In 2020, that jumped up from 6% to 10.5%, which still doesn't sound like a whole lot, but that's almost doubling what it was before just in five years. And again, that's just in 2020. We 2021, 2022, all of this kind of continued spiraling. Um, So there has been a dramatic uptick in using online platforms for agricultural sales which is um, really interesting to see. There's a whole lot of other contingencies that you have to think about when it comes to that broadband access. Um, Do these producers have reliable internet where they can share what they're trying to share about their products? Um, Do they have service where they can be posting on social media to um, talk about their products and show behind the scenes on the farm? All of that are... um, things that we need to kind of consider. And that is some of the stumbling blocks that um, some of these producers did have. Um, A lot of it is most of these producers ended up turning to social media, which is just an incredible tool for farmers and ranchers. If you think about how isolated most farmers and ranchers are geographically, you can talk about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And, you know, there's so much disinformation or misinformation out there that it's important to get all of that across. Um, But when you don't have an audience or you're preaching to the choir, so to speak, in your own little community, um, it doesn't really pay 
to to invest in um, a lot of those conversations. So social media is giving producers that um, platform to spread what they're doing, how they're doing it with the powerful, powerful tool of video. You're not just talking to somebody, you're showing people, this is what I'm doing. This is where these cattle are living. Um, this is why we're doing what they're doing. And um, that, you know, a video, if a picture speaks a thousand words, a video speaks a million. <laughs> so um, that's another thing that the the literature found that I kind of backed up with this research is that video is such a powerful tool when it comes to communicating about agriculture with consumers, because it's not like this big Hollywood production that's getting edited and it's not this tricky um, video. It's just somebody in their field talking about their cattle or, you know, in their barns. And it's just real and authentic and consumers respond to that. And that's what these producers really found that social media was a tool for them to use when um, these other strategies went away. So um, with 10, 10.5% of online sales in 2020 um, being that that made up uh, a large portion of what those um, producers were selling. Before that, way, way beyond any other um, marketing channel, um, farmers markets were the first thing. I mean, you think of local food, the first thing that comes to my mind is farmers markets. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where you go, right? Yeah. Um, and that was all of a sudden ripped away from both consumers and producers. So um, the other thing, one of the other things that um, these producers have found was uh, how important it is to be adaptable when it comes to meeting your consumers where they are and learning and growing alongside with them. So there were some producers that I talked to that did not use social media at all. They didn't have any websites. They strictly worked from word of mouth um, recommendations, which is still, you know, a good way to, to build your business, but you're limiting yourself again to that bubble that you're in instead of having that um, broad reach through social media and even through just having a website where people can look at what you're about and really kind of get to know what your operation is about and the quality of your beef, what sets you apart from others. Um, All of that has a huge impact. So the producers that are adapting and meeting consumers where they're at are the ones that see this astronomical growth or that saw this astronomical growth during COVID-19. So um, social media brought in like a completely new type of customer as well. Um, So I mentioned before, a lot of these customers were people who never had considered investing in a half of a beef before. And it's an investment, right? That's a lot of protein and you have to get the freezer for it. And it's it's not something that you can just do on a whim, really. It's something that you kind of have to be prepared for. So another thing that these producers were seeing is one of the ways that they got their foot in the door was being accessible to these customers. These customers were so interested in getting local beef, but didn't necessarily know how to do it. 
and being accessible through social media or through mutual contacts and being that point person when they have a question, what size freezer do I need for a half or a quarter of beef? Um, and how do I cook a round steak or a chuck roast? That's that's another big wake up call for a lot of people when you're when you're buying beef in bulk. It's not all ribeyes. So how do you um, how do you kind of learn how to um, use some of those lesser known cuts? Um, that is one of the biggest things. I had one of my respondents in this study that said um, she, she, she saw the biggest growth um, when she started sharing family recipes for, you know, this is how you can use a round steak. This is how you can use your flank steak and um, kind of teaching people who don't necessarily go out of their way for those lesser known cuts to use all of the beef instead of just the, the main cuts that we all know and love. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so that, that was a big deal. And just finding those little touch points from, from the producer perspective to, to share things that may be common knowledge to somebody who's been you know, had a half of beef in the freezer their entire life and it just keeps, you know, cycling through. But um, it's it's not necessarily common knowledge and being able to communicate with new customers and potential customers about that um, really sets, sets producers apart. There's several points you brought up there that I want to just pull the threads at a little more. I think it's interesting, the statistic you said of 41% just for from one year to the next, or looking at the month of May specifically, what a drastic difference that is. I mean, I don't know how many cattle, head of cattle or pounds of beef are processed in the U.S. a day, but holy cow, like 41% is insane. That is such like the flip of a switch kind of a situation. It is insane. And um, I, I believe it was something like 9% of U.S. meat plant workers became infected with COVID-19 from that March to June window in 2020. And that either completely shut down a lot of plants or um, severely reduced the amount of product that they could get out. Um, and I, I think it was a pork plant in South Dakota that was responsible, they processed like 20% of the United States bacon supply and they had to shut down. Like all of a sudden, that's a huge gap in the supply chain that um, nobody could have possibly seen coming. And, and not only that, but um, shutting down hotels and restaurants and schools, it, not only are you having this supply chain bottleneck from the processing perspective, but then you're also changing the kinds of food and the packaging and the quantities and all of that, that processing facilities can't just switch on a dime. So we just had this whole big cluster of problems that, <laughs> that um, we, we saw throughout 2020 and even 2021 um, that we are not 
easily adaptable in that sense. So, um, yeah, it, the numbers are absolutely incredible from, from that first part of 2020. It makes me wonder, obviously we're, we're still not very far from 2020. Like we are just under three years from when COVID got really crazy. Um, which also that's kind of crazy to think about. It feels like it's, you know, not that long ago, but it makes me wonder, like, in those three years, what have we done to be able to invest in making the system more stable? Because I'm sorry, like, I take this issue very seriously, and I get a little bit on my soapbox. But 20% of the the US bacon supply, like, we got to protect that. <laughs> Cannot be yeah. having the shortage of bacon. That's yeah, not okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll fight for that bacon any day. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's a slow going process, and a lot of it is building, building up different legislation, building up different ways to you know subsidize and support our food supply chain as a whole from the ground up, and as we see with so many other big changes that need to be made, uh, that takes a lot of time. But um, there's there's one co-op processing facility that's starting in Nebraska, and there's also another one starting in um, Amarillo that is um, a step in the right direction. So rancher owned, ranchers have a say in how it's being run. It's not just, you know, part of the big four that control all of the prices. It's a lot more mutually beneficial for ranchers and processors. Um, And I think hopefully we'll start to see more of those pop up throughout the country to kind of help spread out some of that inventory that we have so that when one of these processors shuts down, it's not as big of a deal and it's not 20% of the supply of anything and that we have ways to kind of make that even out a little bit. I mean, some of the producers that I had um, talking to me, it, it was a real struggle from the producer side of things at the beginning of 2020 because you see this dramatic spike in demand, but you don't necessarily you can't just go get more beef. You have to feed it out. And it, you know, whether you're, if you're feeding it, you know, 12, 18 months, where's the demand going to be then when you're harvesting? Um, so it's hard to balance out that demand. And it's also when you have um, constraints like that in the harvest, um, I had one producer when when I was doing these interviews in November of 2020 say that he already had dates scheduled in the books for 2023. He's scheduling harvest dates for calves that aren't even alive yet, mm. which is again just bananas. That yeah, we have no idea in 2020 where we're going to be in 2023. So it's it's putting a really unfair pressure on producers to just look into the future. And, you know, it's one thing to market your cat, your cattle on futures six months out, but three years is just asking, asking crazy things from these producers. So, um, hopefully, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, hopefully if we start seeing more of these, um, co-op style 
processing facilities, not only will that help the rancher, but it also helps the producer or the consumers. When consumers or when producers can't get their cattle through harvesting due to um, processing constraints and um, bottlenecks and all of that, that's hurting the producer. It tanks the price of live cattle, but it's also hurting the consumer through retail beef prices. So around June of 2020, we saw a 25% increase in retail beef prices. So while producers are getting a lot less money for their product, consumers are paying a lot more for that product. And that also is something that you don't necessarily see. There's a lot of dissonance because as a consumer, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm paying so much more for a pound of hamburger. These ranchers must be getting really greedy. You know, they're starting to get a lot of big profits, but it's not really communicated well anywhere that that's not how it, how it works. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, I think that's a really important issue and it's so challenging to communicate because it changes. I, you know, like it doesn't stay the same how much a producer is getting for their pound of beef versus what the consumer's paying. So I feel like it's a really difficult concept to explain. A lot of, I feel like a lot of producers probably don't fully understand it. So explaining it to a consumer is like just, you know, college level to a first grader. But yeah, I I would be really interested to see um, what the freezer sales were like during that time of like home deep freezes, I, it's got to be insane. Like it's just got to be. So that was that was part of the the research that I did leading up to these interviews, and that was another big constraint that people had as this demand skyrocketed. Freezers across the country were sold out everywhere. Wow. So one of the producers that I interviewed sold nationwide, and he was selling I think like half a beef to somebody in California. And he was trucking it out there himself, um, took the trailer and everything. And this client in California was like, I can't find a freezer within the entire state. So if you happen to see one at a Lowe's or Home Depot or something on your way from Oklahoma to California, I will, you know, give you some money. Please, please, please. If you can find me a freezer and he went out of his way to get this guy a freezer. Um, and, but yeah, it, it was a huge nationwide shortage. Crazy. I mean, how would you ever predict that? (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's just wild. It is. And I think what you said about the cooperatives, um, for processing facilities, is so important because it does put a huge level of risk on a group that already deals with a huge amount of risk every day. The producer who is dealing, you know, with mother nature, with whatever the environmental pressures are that season. Um, So many factors, the cattle markets going up and down. And then that we add in this whole other segment of the industry of like, Oh, by the way, you also now need to figure out how to process your cattle where to process them at, you need to then transport them to the customer and educate the customer on how to use the product you're giving them. So much more responsibility and risk just gets piled on to the producer. Yeah. So those cooperatives um, 
really it's doing what we can as producers to remove some of that risk by sharing it or to, you know, to collectively assume it rather than individually assume it. But that's to me, that's where we've got ahead is figuring out how to spread that risk out in a group more because so I think a lot of people's response to the COVID-19 situation or, you know, those years of changes in our food system was to try to separate themselves from it. You know, we saw a huge increase in the homesteading movement of people trying to grow more of their own food. And I think that is great. But ultimately, that's not a solution. It's not a long-term solution for the entire nation to be able to completely separate themselves from the food system. Yeah. Yeah. Not everybody can start their own small farm and ranch in the backyard. And um, it's something, again, that consumers, I think, especially here in the United States, you take for granted the ease of access that we have to any kind of food you could possibly want. And for the first time, that was taken away for, for a lot of us when COVID happened. And it really forced a lot of consumers to just consider the roots of where that's coming from, which I which I think is why the homesteading movement it has become um, a lot more popular. Because when you consider it, and then you start considering what goes into it, and the process, and the time, and all of that, it it just really makes you think about what you're eating. <laughs> It really does. And I think it's a wonderful thing to have happening with more people producing some, at least some of their own food that makes more sustainable local food systems. If they can, you know, make enough to feed themselves at least part of the time or feed them and their neighbors part of the time, then when these events happen, we have more of a buffer Mm -hmm. to respond to that. But Yeah, as far as just protecting ourselves from risk, I think the more little spider webs in our food web that we can make, the better off we're going to be. Yes, the more connections that that is very true. So one of the other questions that I asked these producers is if they saw any kind of differences in interest and communications between their customers that were in rural areas and their customers that were in like urban or suburban areas. And by far, all of these producers saw the interest in rural consumer from rural consumers they had a lot of interest. And a lot of that was cited as, I want to help my neighbor. I'm going to buy a half of beef from them. I'm not going to get it from the store anyways. Might as well restock and, and help my neighbor out. But when it comes to urban and suburban, that's more removed and out of that you know immediate bubble that we talk about, that's when you don't have any connections to that web. So that was out of panic. I can't get hamburger for my family. I can't get anything, you know, I can't get a ribeye for our anniversary dinner. Where am I going to go? You have to go to the farmer. So um, there's two very different reasons for those rural consumers and those urban consumers reaching out to these producers that are selling direct to consumer um, based on kind of where they are in that web or in that chain um, relating to agriculture. 
Hey, it's Lexi here, and I'm interrupting the show to tell you about a new option we have for marketing support for you. I've met so many people the past six months who are looking for DIY marketing support, and while I primarily offer marketing packages and website design in my marketing business, I'm excited to have something just for you DIYers too. So I know you need answers quickly to help you overcome tech challenges and get feedback on your marketing content when you have a spare minute to work on it. And you want to keep growing and learning how to make your marketing work in a way that makes sense for you. Here's what I've got for you. First, you can sign up for a free marketing toolkit, which includes social media post templates, email marketing outlines, video ideas, and a content planner and tracker. And to get tutorials and answers to those pressing questions, sign up for our weekly marketing tutorials for just $10 a month, where we tackle your most frustrating challenges together. Or sign up for the marketing support line, where you get direct access via text message to ask all of your tech support and marketing advice questions. It's like having a marketing and tech support person in your back pocket. We solve website issues, social media challenges, and just give feedback on the content you're creating. You can find those options at LexiWrightConsulting.com slash social under marketing support. You talked a little bit about um, farmers or ranchers and farmers, beef producers, um, using social media to kind of establish more of those connections with folks who are outside of their rural communities. And um, what was the learning curve like? Did any of them talk about that of having to really market their product for the first time? Yeah. So again, with with all that happening in 2020, it was a crazy time. Some of these producers were having to learn how to use social media in different ways. Um, (laughs) There were one or two of them that were complaining about getting put in Facebook jail a few times (laughs) because, um, you know, sometimes Facebook doesn't like when you post certain things about selling food products and it's all, it changes every day, you know? Yeah. But there were a lot of customers that were learning how to expand um, that went from posting on their page, maybe like once or twice every few months to consistently posting um, on their pages and making an Instagram page so that they could get a little bit more interactive and um, have better access to like videos and reels and all that stuff. But um, one of the other really interesting findings, and I think this is the thing that shocked me the most, is that a lot of these producers said that at some point in time during that beginning part of the pandemic, they had to stop advertising completely because they couldn't keep up with that spike in demand. And again, it's not something that you can just go and get more beef. You have to do it right. And all of these producers, um, one of the things that keep these customers coming back and create loyal customers once they do actually bite the bullet and invest in these uh, this local beef is the high quality of the product that you can taste a difference. You can tell a difference. And I think it tastes different when you trust who it's coming from too. Yeah. (laughs) Um, you know, just in your head, it, it has a different impact. Um, so these producers were like, we are not willing to cut corners. We're not willing to, you know, cheap out and rush this or, um, you know, have a lower quality product than what we're comfortable putting our name on. 
So we're going to do it right. But they were just selling out within hours. And again, nobody could anticipate this dramatic spike in demand. So um, it was really hard within that first few months for producers to kind of level out how much they needed, how many cattle they needed to be sorting off to um, fatten up and keeping the finishing lot and all of that. So I, I just thought that was so interesting that while simultaneously, while they're learning how to use social media, how when they're investing in a good website that's user-friendly and um, you know able to take payment and purchases and stuff, they're also having to back away completely from advertising because they just could not keep up with any of that demand. Yeah. It's crazy thinking how flexible they had to become. Um, Do you think that like long-term for folks that you mentioned um, the one producer that was scheduling harvest dates out into 2023, do you think long-term that that's still going to be his plan, like kind of scrambling to keep up with demand or are things leveling off where are things headed in the future? So that's the million dollar question. I <laughs> I would love to do this study again. Um, and that's that's something that I've been thinking ever since I finished these interviews in 2020. Like, where is this going to be in five years? Because I think we saw this ridiculously dramatic, like just straight um, slope of increase in demand. I think that will slash has evened out a little bit, but um, like you said before, there's the homesteading movement now. It it really was a shockwave for consumers that you couldn't just always have immediate access to any kind of food that you want. Um, and with that came a certain level of distrust from the traditional retailers that you typically get your your produce from. And it made a lot of consumers more aware of where their food comes from and what goes into creating their food. And once some of those connections started to get established, that's the biggest thing that these producers saw is when you start really being intentional and authentic and transparent with customers and with consumers who have questions about why there's such a big disconnect between the price of live cattle and the price of retail beef. When you start being authentic and transparent about all of that, it just kind of naturally forms this relationship. And when you're able to show what you're doing, you're able to show what inputs are going into things. You're able to kind of walk people through the tiny, tiny profit margins that um, a lot of producers have. Um, then it puts a lot of things in perspective. And not only from a health standpoint um, and from uh, an availability standpoint, also from a social standpoint, people are more inclined to not only buy that local beef, but continue buying that local beef. Once they establish that relationship with producers, once they taste the high quality food, then um, they're more apt to come back in the future. Yeah. Forming those habits of connecting with like the folks in the local community that have resources in those situations is so important. You Mm -hmm. talked a little bit um, about a producer that was sharing recipes about how to use 
um, less popular cuts. Is is that the recipes and the how-to? Is it the quality and the behind the scenes? What is it that you heard from producers that made the biggest connection with people as far as um, like closing that gap between consumer and producer? Yeah. So again, I think the biggest thing in in whatever way they did it, whether it was social media or word of mouth, um, you know, friend of a friend, it's all about being intentional and being authentic with the people that are interested in your product and interested in your operation. And that really has the the biggest impact. And when you're able to kind of take some of those fears that, you know, maybe somebody was interested in buying local beef, but then saw the price tag and got sticker shock and said, I'm just going to get a pound of hamburger from Walmart. when they can't do that anymore and decide to invest in buying some beef in bulk or something like that, um, it can get really intimidating, right? Um, it's the price. It's not knowing what, how to cook certain things. And when you take some of that intimidation away by saying, by laying it all out for them, laying out the process, laying out, um, you may be spending $1,500, but price it out per pound, price it out per cut. This is what you're getting. And this is, you know, in the long run, most of the time it's cheaper um, to buy bulk. And again, you're getting that high quality um, sale. But once you kind of take away a lot of those fears or a lot of those barriers that people have, which these producers were really working on doing for a lot of the consumers with new interest in local beef, um, then it becomes a lot easier to get customers because you're taking away all of their excuses to not buy local beef. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's really interesting seeing some of the local producers change how they sell it as well. Even, you know, even ones who've been doing direct to consumer for a long time and maybe selling halves, holes and quarters switch to selling package deals of, you know, just individual pounds or cuts of meat and making it more accessible in that way too. Cause a lot of folks, you know, $1,500 in one shopping trip is not even logistically possible for them if they're living paycheck to paycheck or investing that much in just one ingredient that's going into their meals isn't, isn't an option. Yeah. And that's something else that, um, there was one producer that started doing like little, um, boxes, like subscription boxes that you could do. And, um, you could get a really good deal on some of those, you know, cuts that aren't as popular. Mm-hmm. And again, once you take away the barrier of, I don't know how to do, I don't know what to do with a round steak. I don't know how to cook a chuck roast. Once you take that barrier away from consumers and say, this is a really great family recipe that we've been using for 50 years, try it out with this uh, round round steak that uh, we have it becomes a lot more accessible and it also empowers customers more to kind of take that, take their food into their own hands. And you don't, you don't have to be stuck with the same thing over and over and you can find different ways to get more bang for your buck with different cuts of meat and, and all of that. So yeah. I'm interested to know what your family thought or how they kind of processed this research, because they would probably be from hearing you talk, 
more traditional consumers who don't have a huge connection to agriculture outside of you. So what was their reaction and take on the information you had? Yeah, so they thought it was absolutely fascinating because again, I mean, they were just like the rest of the world. When when you can't buy meat on the grocery store shelves, it's like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And um, they actually started getting um, a subscription meat box from um, it's like different different producers all over the country. So you can get like pork and beef and seafood and you can just kind of pick and choose what you want. And again, they have deals on different kind of cuts that are maybe lesser known or not as um, widely sought after that you can get. So it, it was kind of exactly like that um, subscription box that the producer that I interviewed had, but just on a national scale, this this company has it set up. And um, it it just really makes made them think that, you know, they never really thought about where their food was coming from or being produced. And um, again, through this subscription box, you can see where what operation your all of your different meats are coming from. And um, having that personalized connection to where your food is coming from is really, I think, going to be a bigger part of our food system moving forward because of all of the intricacies we had during COVID. Mm-hmm. And it's a big jump for to ask a consumer to make. Like, obviously, they are interested in making it when there's no other options. But it's a big jump for them to make the change from walking into a store and being able to pick out whatever they want and not really having to talk to anybody or consult anyone else about the decision, budget for it, to all of a sudden going to have to meet Joe Blow Rancher to pick up your 40 pounds of meat or whatever it is this time that you got. Um, That's a huge change in their purchasing, just the whole process. It is. And having that dramatic of a change in purchasing behavior, it takes drastic times. And we, again, we saw drastic times in COVID-19. So it changed a lot of that purchasing behavior. And like I said before, that has plateaued to a certain extent. Um, But I would be really interested to hear from other farmers and ranchers that kind of had that base. So all of the producers that I talked to in this study None of them started selling direct to consumer because of COVID-19. They all kind of had a little base, at least before. There were a few that started like right before the pandemic hit, but um, none of them had that as the sole purpose of why they started their direct to consumer business. But um, it'll be really interesting to see from a producer perspective, how that roller coaster has kind of evened out. And if there is still increased local interest um, and if consumers are still willing to pay for bulk beef or if they're interested in subscription boxes, if they're interested in learning more about how to cook different cuts of meat, like I think there's so much more opportunity for beef producers to get their perspectives out and to have a say in this conversation of where the beef industry goes. And now is the time that 
you, it's still fresh in a lot of consumers' minds what everybody went through in terms of availability and prices of retail beef and meat and food in general. Um, now is the time for these producers to be speaking out because it is so fresh and so raw. Um, and it holds a lot of power being able to feed your family and being able to get nutritious protein on the table and have that available. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think um, we've talked a lot about what producers are doing in the wake of COVID-19 and how things are changing for them. What do you think producers, not producers, consumers should be doing or could be doing if they want to have more local options or be a little bit more connected to their food? Yeah. So from a consumer perspective, um, it takes actively wanting to get connected. And again, that's something that we saw an increase of during COVID. And I'd be really interested to hear if that's still a trend that we're seeing. I feel like it is, but you know, we're all in our own little bubbles. So, <laughs> um, but the, the thing that started me along this path was that post from the Oklahoma Cattlemen's Association that said, we understand there's no food in any of the grocery or there's no beef products in any of the grocery stores. We're seeing empty shelves all across the state. If you want beef, here's a list of producers that we work with that have beef that they will sell you. And but if you didn't know to look at the Oklahoma Cattlemen's Association, how would you see that? So it really takes intentionality on the um point of the consumers to seek out that information. And on the flip side, it takes intentionality from the producers, just like I was talking about earlier, to invest in being available to these consumers and not to be tucked away in small town Oklahoma in the middle of nowhere where nobody can find you because you don't have a website or social media and you have to go through a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend to find somebody who produces beef that you can sell. Um, so it's really kind of bridging that gap and being intentional and invested in communication and relationship building with from both the producer side and the consumer side. It takes two to tango. And um, that's one of the, the beauties of social media is that it has opened this two-way channel of dialogue between producers and consumers where it's not one party talking at another. It's two parties talking with one another, talking about their needs, talking about their realities and their perspectives on things. And I think that has really changed the game. And hopefully we're just seeing the beginning of some of the changes that have occurred through all of this. Yeah, I hope so too. I think it'll be interesting to see one of the last things I think to change based on how COVID impacted producers and consumers will be the regulations around how meat is processed. And it'll be very interesting to see what that looks like or how long it takes or what direction that goes. Yeah, it will be really interesting. I mean, um, as with every corporation in America, it's right now a game of money and the people who have the most money are interested in making more money, <laughs> which isn't necessarily in 
the best interests of producers or consumers. So it's the middlemen who are speaking the loudest for the beef industry right now. And hopefully through COVID, it'll take a long time, but we can get that voice kind of leveled out a little Mm -hmm. bit more. Middlemen do play a huge role in the food supply chain, but when they're the only voice that's really being heard, that is when it becomes an issue of such a big disconnect between where food is being produced and where it's being consumed. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Linnea. I feel like we could keep talking for probably another hour. So maybe you'll have to come back on sometime. (laughs) But thank you so much for taking time today to share about your research and what you're doing. Um, I think people will be really excited to hear it. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it anytime. Do you know someone building their ag legacy or with stories of yesteryear on the farm that need to be shared? Please let us know or help them apply to be a guest on the show at farmingonpurpose.com guest. If you've enjoyed spending time with us today, please take a moment to review the show on Apple Podcasts or give us a share on social media. You can follow the host of Farming on Purpose, Lexi, at, at Farming on Purpose on all social media. And let us know what topics you want to hear more about.